Okay. Thank you everyone for joining meeting number 12 of the M2 data series. Um, we are very honored to have uh, Otavian here with us today. About Otavian, um, Otavian is a postdoctoral researcher at C-Cells MIT, working with Tommy Giacola and Regina Basile on deep learning solutions for drug discovery and structural biology using geometric and physical induced biases. He received his PhD from UTH Zurich under the supervision of Thomas Hoffman, working on non-Euclidean representation, learning for graphs, hierarchical data, and natural language processing. He is also a member of Machine Learning for Pharmaceutical Discovery and Synthesis Consensus, the Abdul Latif Jamil Clinic for Machine Learning in Health, the DARPA Accelerated Molecular Discovery Program, and the ELIS Society. His research includes Spotlight at ICLR 2022, Spotlight at Norris 2021, 2028, and Oral Talks at ACML 2018 and 2019. Without further ado, let's welcome the speaker. Um, thank you again, Otavian, for, for, for being here today, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Prudencio, and thank you everyone for taking the time to, to attend my talk. So I want to make it like a, an interesting discussion. So feel free to jump in with questions. I have quite a little bit of content. So if you wish, we can delay the questions for the very end, but otherwise let's, yeah, let's, let's dive into it. So um, I'm going to talk about how we can combine deep learning and geometry to model 3D structures and 3D interactions of molecules. So I want to acknowledge my collaborators, which are listed here before I, before I, I start. So, why are we interested in 3D structures and interactions of molecules? So uh, this uh, problem is a key aspect of understanding how disease, diseases like uh, act, like, like the, the mechanisms of diseases in, in, our, in, uh, in our body or animal bodies, and also to accelerate drug discovery. So I want to show here just a, mo a motivating video where we see abnormal protein-protein interactions so we, we have uh, uh, these, these proteins which are on the surface of tumor cells and they interact, they form complexes. Uh, and this actually triggers then various other effects such as tumor growth or metastasis proliferation. So these abnormal protein-protein interactions happen uh, for diseases, but also protein-protein interactions happen in all over, in all over uh, the human cell. So it is very important to understand those also from a 3D perspective, understanding how, how proteins deform and, and where in, 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 and in, in, in how they actually attach to each other. Um, so th there has been this therapeutics idea, which, which is um, uh, tried a lot in pharmaceutical companies. Essentially, we know, we know proteins, how they interact and in which parts they interact, sometimes for some proteins, and we want to prevent their formation. So maybe we can design new molecules such as an antibody showed here to prevent the formation of such complexes. So in this talk, I want to um, present my recent models uh, which, which, uh, ac which accelerate drug discovery. So uh, the goal here is to design fast and accurate AI models that are going to predict uh, complexes of molecules and also 3D structures of, of molecules. So I'm going to focus on this problem of we have as input two molecules, maybe, maybe two proteins or maybe a protein and a drug-like molecule. 
and we want to predict how they attach to each other. So we want to predict the 3D structure of the complex. And I'll also highlight a solution for how we can pre, uh, predict conformations, like ensembles of low energetic conformations of small drug-like molecules. So uh, I combine geometry and deep learning um, to, uh, to tackle this, these two problems. And I achieve like between tens and hundreds of times speed ups um, comparable, um, uh, 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 when I compare with, with uh, existing solutions like commercial and open source software. Uh, while achieving comparable or better quality as I will show a bit later. So previous methods are insufficient. Uh, I will show they are, that they are slow and inaccurate because they have to explore a very vast space and they do that in a rather inefficient way. So you might ask, why, why do you need speed? And um, so speed is actually key for various uh, aspects of drug discovery pipeline. So one is virtual screening. Let's say we have a target, which is a protein, maybe a cancer protein, and we want to find the best set of drugs or drug candidates that are going to attach to the specific target and maybe inhibit its activity. So um, for instance, we have data sets of billions of uh, millions or billions of uh, synthesizable drug-like molecules, and we want to scan them very, ra very rapid rapidly and find the possible candidate molecules. So we need to have very, fast computational methods in order to do that. Um, we also want to, like once we find good drug candidates, we want to scan computationally for toxicity. So one aspect of toxicity is to discover uh, side effects of therapies in the sense of like off targets. So a drug can attach to a target, which is let's say a cancer, cancer protein, but it can also attach to an off target, which is a protein from a normal tissue that we will not want it to attach to. So. One, one way to, to do that is to scan the entire human proteome or, or at least the subset for which we know the 3D structures of the proteins uh, and then um, see if, if our drug candidate can potentially also uh, attach to some of targets and then maybe go ahead and uh, in, in wet lab experiments test this hypothesis out. So uh, I'm, I'm going to show some, uh, some uh, representations of proteins and molecules and just to make sure that everybody in the audience, audience is on the same page. Um, so I, I just want to, to highlight the fact that drug-like molecules can be seen as graphs, so molecular graphs where nodes are atoms and uh, bonds are edges. But in fact, in reality, they are 3D, 3D point clouds, 3D objects. We can view them as 3D objects which have actually flexibility, internal flexibility in let's say torsion angles of rotatable bonds. So for one molecular graph, in fact, in practice, we have an ensemble of many low energetic states. Um, and uh, these are two, two possible views of, of drug-like molecules. Uh, when we talk about proteins, we have proteins represented the sequences, sequences of amino acids or residues, which are small, small molecules. Um, and these sequences are folded in 3D. In 3D. Uh, from, a from a computer science perspective, we can view them as 3D spatial graphs. And this is uh, the, the view we are going to uh, adapt today. Um, and we can also view them as meshes of irregular, like irregular surfaces of, of some 3D object. So you, you can imagine we can tackle uh, these problems using various techniques from maybe NLP or uh, graph representation learning. And this is where my core uh, domain area is. And also geometry processing, computer vision, 3D graphics, and so on. So um, 
when you talk about um, uh, 3D structures and interactions of molecules, we know that they are governed by laws of geometry, physics, biology, and chemistry. So unfortunately, previous deep learning models that deal with, with uh, these problems, uh, they struggle to learn these principles implicitly because you will see a bit later, we have insufficient data compared to other deep learning data modalities such as, such as text or vision. So here we talk usually about a few thousand of training samples. So this is very, very little amount of data. And the goal here is to incorporate as much as possible from prior knowledge in principled ways into, into these deep learning models. And I call those inductive biases. So these are priors, for really domain knowledge priors, and I'll give some examples just in a second. Um, and the, the goal to, to incorporate these, uh, these priors into our uh, deep learning solutions is to, to, build, to build trust. So if we now take, take our models to industry, to pharmaceutical companies, um, we, we, we want to show uh, why, we want to show that we incorporate some of, some of the do domain knowledge that is known for decades. Um, Okay, so some examples of such inductive biases are, are shown here, but of course it's not exhaustive, it's just a set of small examples. So symmetries, uh, for instance, we know molecules are invariant to, with respect to rotations and translations in the Euclidean space, which means that if we, if we rotate or translate um, a protein, let's say, we are going to change the numerical representation, but we are not going to change the underlying biological object. This is, for instance, not true for reflections, which are going to change, so uh, are, are going to affect uh, aspects such, such as chirality. And I will, I will tackle that uh, a little bit later. So um, we also talk about independent symmetries in multi-body interactions. And in, in, in today's talk, I'm going to touch on this aspect a bit more in detail. Uh, we have also geometric constraints. So for instance, when you talk about proteins creating a complex, uh, we know that protein volumes cannot intersect, and in fact, they should be actually tangent during binding. Uh, so we want to have this constraint. We also have chemical constraints. So we know certain, um, certain uh, residues are more hydrophobic and others are more hydrophilic. And the hydrophobic ones, they want to minimize their contact with water molecules. So water molecules surround proteins in the human cell. So what happens is that these hydrophobic interactions, they tend to cluster. Um, and in this way, they minimize uh, their surface contact with water molecules. And this aspect is important both for, let's say, uh, folding, protein folding, or molecular, uh, also for, for protein or molecular interactions. So we also have physical constraints, for instance, various forces, intermolecular forces, such as Van der Waals. So in my research, I, I create deep learning models by leveraging powerful, powerful tools from various other domains, for instance, optimal transport, which was developed uh, as, as a branch of mathematics and then uh, recently adapted quite a, quite a bit in machine learning and in, in various aspects of machine learning. Um, of course, equivalence to Euclidean symmetries, and we'll talk about that in a second. Graph neural networks is, is one of the core technologies I use to embed graphs. And then various aspects of geometry, 3D geometry, such as geometry of tangent and non-intersecting bodies. So with that, let's let's dive in into the first into the uh, in, in, into the first uh, part of, of of this talk, which is called Equidoc. So yeah, the idea here is we have two proteins as input, and we know that they are going to interact. And what we want to do is to predict 
how to produce the final complex. So essentially what we want to do is to take these two structures of the two proteins as input and have a neural network, which we called equivariant docking, so equidoc. And it's going to predict, for now, it's going to be a rigid transformation of one of the proteins, which we call ligand, to place it in the right location and with the right orientation with respect to the second protein. And in this way, you predict the final protein complex. So in this problem, we, we, we call it blind, blind docking, because we don't, have a, we don't take any assumption of uh, the areas of the of where the two proteins are likely to interact, so the binding the binding site. Um, so we have some we have several challenges of previous docking methods. So they are typically very time consuming, um, and we talk about tens of minutes to hours per a single complex. And why that happens is because they are actually facing an enormous search space of possible ways to attach the two proteins. So how how these models typically work is that they take the, the two proteins and place them in essentially all possible ways to, to attach them. So they sample like millions of such candidates, maybe using some Monte Carlo search. So they have this expensive candidate sampling. And once they have, uh, uh, so uh, this is followed by, by a scoring procedure, which can involve deep learning or, or can involve more traditional uh, methods such as force fields. Uh, and then it, it is followed by a ranking. And finally, the top scored candidates are then further fine-tuned in their respective uh, binding locations. So in instead, uh, my deep learning model uh, will, is going to do that um, as, a, as a direct prediction of the protein complex in just seconds. And I'm going to, to show how, how that happens. But the idea is that to, we are going to bypass this expensive candidate sampling strategy. So a, a key aspect is one, one geometrical constraint, which is uh, this invariance to initial placements, orientations, and roles of the two proteins. So if we have, let's say, the ligand initialized in 3D, uh, like placed randomly in different locations, maybe rotated differently, we want to make sure that the final protein complex is predicted always identical, no matter where the ligand is placed in space. Even if, even if it's placed like to overlap with the receptor or if it's placed like 100 angstrom apart. Uh, we also want to be invariant to this notion of roles. So which one is a receptor or which one is a ligand should not matter for proteins. It would matter for, for drug-like molecules. Uh, and, and that I'm going to discuss a bit later. So in order to, to do that, like previous methods have relied on strategies such as data augmentation. Uh, unfortunately, this suffers from two, 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 two issues. One issue is that it's actually very expensive because you have to increase the amount of training data uh, by, by many times. And um, it also doesn't generalize to any new, uh, any unseen initial positions, let's say at this time. So in, in our paper, we derive a theoretical result which gives us necessary and sufficient constraints that should be, uh, should be incorporated in all deep learning models that predict protein complexes. And we also show how to hard code those into deep learning models. So these are not just soft constraints like regularizer, but really hard constraints. And I'll, I'm going to explain how, how that works in our model. So, okay, so now let's dive into the core of, of this Equidoc model. So I'm going to first show the intuition and then get into, into, the, into the details. So at training time, we have access to these true docked complexes. So they have 3D structures of both proteins and they are already placed in their, in their co-crystal 
positions. So we have receptor and ligand coordinates, which in my case are going to be just uh, coordinates of alpha carbons of each residue, but various other ways to, to represent 3D uh, coordinates are, are possible. For instance, taking all, all atoms of, of proteins. So once we have such a, such a complex structure, uh, we, we are going to, to define the set of so-called binding interface points. So these are set of points that lie at the contact between the two proteins. So th this can be defined in multiple ways, but the way we define it in our, in our work is to take pairs of residues from both proteins that are closer than a threshold. In our case, it's eight angstrom. Uh, so we take all these pairs of it, or all these pairs of, of uh, residues. If you want, you can view that as a bipartite graph, uh, and then we take midpoints of their segments in 3D, and these are going to give us a set of these red red points, which we call binding interface points. And I call them P1 star equals P P2 star because I view them as two identical sets which are overlapping completely. But now, so this is like the same figure. Uh, so. I call them P1 star equals P2 star, but now once, one is, once we separate these two proteins out, we're going to, to have to, we're going to have two sets, right? We're going to have P1 and P2. And these are going to be the undocked or unbound input structures. And um, what is very important here, and that's the main intuition of, of, of our model, is that if we now superimpose P1 and P2, uh, we are going to, so essentially take P1 and P2 and find the rotation and translation to place them back together. Uh, then we are going to recover the docking uh, transformation to dock the two proteins back. So if we take R and T, which are the rotation and translation for superimposing P1 and P2, and we apply it now to this uh, ligand protein, we're going to recover the, the true complex. So, but obviously uh, we don't have P1 and P2 at test time, at inference time, right? So we only have it because of the training data. So what can we do? So the idea here is that we want to predict some proxy set of 3D points we are going to, uh, to call uh, key point sets. So they are denoted by one, Y1 and Y2. And we want Y1 and Y2 to approximate well the binding interface points, P1 and P2. So if we have that, we are going to now then, instead of superimposing P1 and P2, which we don't have at this time, we're going to superimpose Y1 and Y2 and we're going to recover uh, the docking. Uh, we're going to predict in this way the docking rotation and translation to dock the two proteins. Okay, so the idea is to use a deep learning model to predict these 3D key point sets, Y1 and Y2. So I'm going to show first what is the architecture, the deep learning architecture to predict Y1 and Y2 and what kind of constraints we want to impose there. And then I'm going to show what it means exactly this approximate P1 and P2 uh, sentence here. Uh, because that's, that's, uh, that's currently a little bit uh, ambiguous because we have, uh, we have to deal with sets of unordered, so an unordered list of objects of 3D, of 3D points. Okay, so, uh, so, we, so the architecture here is the following. So we have two proteins as input and we want to have a deep learning model, we call it F, which is going to predict key point sets. So in this case, it's going to predict, let's say just in this cartoon setup, it's going to predict three, black stars and three blue stars corresponding to each of the two proteins. So here is where uh, the, the first um, aspect of uh, symmetries and equivariance has to be incorporated in the model. So when we talk about uh, 
group equivariance or uh, uh, yeah, like uh, Euclidean symmetries incorporated in deep learning models, we have in mind this classic already like becoming very classic model of ConvNets, which takes as input an image and applies a deep learning model to do maybe image segmentation. And now if we apply an Euclidean transformation, so we slightly move, we translate the object in the image, um, and then we apply the same deep learning model. What we want is to guarantee that the output of this deep learning model is such that if we invert the initial Euclidean transformation, we are going to recover the output of the first of the first uh, image. Um, so essentially, uh, this was incorporated in, in confidence, as I said, and in various other architectures. And this has been also generalized to 3D point clouds, so uh, 3D objects and also incorporating not just translations, but also rotations and maybe reflections. Um, and there is also, of course, the more theoretical notion of group equivariance. So we can generalize this to not just, uh, not just uh, Euclidean symmetries, but any type of, of group actions. So uh, what, what you can see here is that this is only, only acting on a, on a single object. So in our case, we have to deal with multi-objects. So we have two objects as input, and this can be easily generalized to multiple objects. And we talk about this notion of independence equivariance, and I'm going to explain that uh, in more detail in a second, but just intuition, the intuition of it is shown on this slide. So if we take these two proteins, we have some key points as output. And now if we ro randomly rotate and translate the two proteins, we want to guarantee that the key points are going to exactly and deterministically follow how these two proteins were initially rotated and translated. So this is pretty much the figure I showed before with a cat and the, uh, the translation and rotation. But now it's actually two independent transformations that, that change the two proteins. Okay, so that's, that's the notion of multi-body equivariance. So let's see how we actually do that in our model. So we have this Equidoc deep learning model, which is going to predict two key point sets of equal cardinality uh, as output. So uh, the two input proteins are obviously going to have different number of of residues or different number of points, but we always guarantee that the output is going to have a fixed number of uh, points, let's say k in this, in this case. Uh, so the idea here is to stack specially designed layers that are going to integrate Euclidean symmetries. And let's see how we actually do that. So we take the two proteins as input and we represent them as uh, spatial graphs. So simply putting it, we have this idea of k nearest neighbor individual protein graphs, which uh, means that we take each alpha carbon of each residue to represent one residue. So uh, we're, we're going to retain the 3D coordinates of residues in this way. And for each residue also have various types of features such as residue type. And then we have some local frame features also uh, uh, relating to the orientation uh, orientation of, of uh, local frames of residues. And they also have uh, pairwise edge features, which are actually not, not shown in, on this slide, but each edge also has, has some features. So we built in this way, we built a ligand graph and the receptor graph. So we connect each node with the 10, with the 10 closest nearest, nearest neighbors. Uh, but again, yeah, this is like a hyperparameter. So um, uh, it, so, so this k-nearest neighbor uh, graphs can, can look also differently depending on, on how, how one decides to, to, to create them. Okay, so here are, here are the spatial graphs shown in a, in, a, in a cartoonish way. 
just to just to make it a bit more simpler to to digest this this figure. So we have we have these two graphs again. We have coordinates denoted by x, and we are going to have features we are which are going to be denoted by f or h. Uh, and then what we do is that we run message passing in our network, but we have to use a special type of message passing in our network. So uh, usually MPNNs are acting on individual graphs. Uh, in our case, we have both intra-messages like standard uh, uh, graph neural networks or standard message passing neural networks. But in addition, we also have cross inter-messages. So messages uh, between the two proteins. So if people are familiar with the with work of graph matching networks, this is actually uh, taking that uh, one step further and also integrating symmetries and equivariance. So we have this idea of, uh, so we call our model independent SAC equivariant graph matching networks. And let me say what this formally means. So uh, what we have to do is to, to stack here several layers of, of this graph, um, of these message, message passing neural networks, and then transform coordinates and features jointly. Um, and in this way, we are going to guarantee this core property of independent SEC equivariance of coordinates and invariance of feature embeddings. So this formally means that if we rotate and translate the 3D point clouds of the two proteins with completely independent rotations, Q1 and Q2, Q2 and independent translations, G1 and G2, we are going to see that deterministically in the output. So the output is going to always be transformed as such. But you see like this is very different from single objects. In single objects, you only have a single transformation of the original, a single uh, rotation and translation of the input is going to affect a single output. Here we have multi-body. Multi so uh, let me just, I, I see there are a bunch of, a bunch of questions. So I will, I will uh, maybe, uh, Prudencio, do you want to? No, so basically I was going to say the same thing. There's a few questions that you might need to pay attention to. I can go through them quickly. So uh, Simon Matis was asking, was there any particular reasoning beyond going to KNN graphs versus threshing the protein contact maps? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by threshing the protein contact map. So in this case, we, we have the two proteins as input and we don't know, it's, it's a blind docking problem, right? So we don't know where they are going to, to interact, but maybe, maybe Simon, maybe you want to comment? Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes. Ah, lovely. Yeah, I was just wondering, so you have the structures of the individual, of the, of the ligand and the receptor individually, right? In your problem. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I was thinking you could use the contact map of this one, so the all-to-all -all distances essentially, and just say any residues that are lower than or closer than, say, 10 angstrom, we draw an edge between those. I was just wondering, was there any kind of consideration of uh, graph connectivity? Um, uh, so are, are you talking about cross connections between the two proteins? Yes, so the way you, you built up your initial graph, that was... I, I was wondering whether there was any kind of spe special consideration why KNN. Yeah, so in, in our case, um, so our, our architecture, as I, as I said in the previous slides, it is, is invariant to where you place the two proteins in space, right? So in this case, there, there is no, no notion of what is going to be their proximity of the two proteins, because this, this is not, it's, it's actually invariant to how, to how the two proteins are initialized in space. I, I'm not sure if that 
Uh, sorry, maybe I didn't express myself clearly. I mean, yeah. between residues in the same protein. Oh, in the same protein. So, okay. So uh, what you're asking is if, if the K-nearest neighbor graph was not constructed in a way that, um, sorry, can you say again? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I meant was if you, when you built up the graphs to then do your message passing on them, it's basically as a pre-processing step, you have to define essentially where will you draw your edges and where not. And you at the moment, you say basically, if they are um, among the closest K neighbors, then I'll draw an edge. And so you know the distance between the individual residues to, to select the case, K closest ones. So I was wondering, you, equally as another uh, prescription, you could also just say, uh, if it's closer than say in a certain radius around this residue, I will draw an edge. And I was yeah, just yeah, wondering yeah. Yeah, sure. if, you did, so, if you looked at that. So yeah, in, in fact, in our case, we have also a threshold for like 30 Armstrong. Armstrong. So if it's so, we, what we do is that we take ten closest neighbors, but in a radius of thirty angstrom. But of course, other other possibilities are are definitely um, here. Yeah. So we, we we haven't played a lot with that aspect, uh, but yeah, definitely your suggestion could 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 be one one good way to to construct ligand okay. graphs in awesome. in a different way. Awesome. Thank you. Thank sure. you. So I see Dominique has a question. Do you encode distances as edge features? Uh, yeah, we also have edge features which incorporate distances and also incorporate uh, relative orientation of the local frames of the two residues, right? So each residue can you can build a local frame, uh, essentially like like a local uh, Cartesian coordinate system if you want, uh, similar to what AlphaFold is doing, for instance. And then you can take the relative the relative orientation of two of two local of two local frames connected by by an edge, let's say in, in the graph, and then you can build invariant features, uh, SSC invariant features. So we, we actually do that. So it, it's actually all detailed in, in the appendix of our Equidoc paper. Um, Andrea has a question. What exactly goes as an input into the point cloud? Is the protein coordinates only, or do you also use mesh information? Yeah, we also use some mesh information. We have, uh, for instance, a very efficient feature uh, that we designed ourselves to to um, uh, essentially uh, as, as, as kind of a proxy for how close we are to the surface of the protein. So it's like a residue depth, if you want, in uh, MSMS, for instance, software, if, you, if you're familiar with that. So again, yeah, uh, this is all, and we, we have a, a few other features. Yeah, uh, can you recall how the bipartite edges or, Vincent, sorry, uh, can you recall how the bipartite edges or edges between nodes belonging to different graphs are constructed is it all pairs? Yeah, so for message passing, it's all pairs, but we use uh, an, attention, an attention way to send messages. So it's, it's like graph attention networks, but for now for, in, for interconnections, right? Okay, so I see that there is something else. Okay, good. Someone else or should I go? Please continue, I think there's no more question. Okay, awesome. So yeah, so here, uh, yeah, so I already explained this idea of core, uh, this core property of independent SS3 equivariance. So now the final step is to, to now take these coordinates, transform coordinates and embeddings, which are transformed jointly for the two proteins and do some sort of projection to project them into, into uh, two sets of ligand and receptor key points. And um, this is going to, to be handled by a, a, a particular instance of um, multi-head attention, which is going to incorporate SS3 equivariance. So just in, in uh, very quickly, this is using transform coordinates, 
as values, and then keys and queries are just based on transformed uh, transform feature embeddings. Okay, so 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 far I just explained the architecture of predicting key point sets, but what I didn't explain so far is now how how what what it means actually that the key points approximate well the binding uh, interface points, which again we have to do during training. So during training we have to train Y1 and Y2 to fit well into P1 and P2. But what does it even mean? Because we are dealing with sets of 3D, 3D points, right? So intuitively we want, we have, we have, we have some constraints. I'm, I'm going to say why this problem is actually non-trivial, but intuitively what we want is we want the distance between set Y2 and set P2 to be small. And also the distance between set Y1 and set P1, we want it to be small, okay? So this is going to depend on some unknown alignments that we have to predict. So, to, so we have to predict which point of Y2 corresponds to which point of P2, for instance. And the same for Y1 and P1, right? So we have to predict this, this green dashes if you want. So in fact, um, is this, so these sets are actually not, uh, so set y, uh, the key point sets and the binding interface sets are going to have different cardinality, right? So uh, these alignments are not going to be bijective mappings, but they're going to be more like a sparse, if you're familiar with optimal transport, they're going to be sparse transport plans. And let me get uh, back to that in a second. So, as I said, we have to predict these alignments between, um, between the key points and binding uh, interface points in order to train our model. So this actually depends. So the first challenge here is that we have to be aware of this constraint, which is we know the alignment between P1 and P2. So we know, okay, these two points were originally identical in, in, in the docked position. We also know, so we, we essentially know uh, this bijection between P1 and P2. We also know by design, because we use this multi-head attention layer, by model design, we know the alignment between, um, between key points uh, in, our, in our model. So we know the alignments between Y1 and Y2. So we have this constraint. The first constraint is that we want to respect the alignments Y1 and Y2 and P1 and P2. Now we have two more constraints. So, oh, no, sorry. Uh, so what this means essentially is that if we have, if we have this, if, we, if we're going to predict this alignment between this black star and this red dot, this is going to automatically imply the alignment between this, um, between this blue star and this red dot. So we have to be very, we have to be aware of this constraint and incorporate it in our model. So a second challenge is that we want to make sure that the key points are going to cover well the binding interface points. So in this case, we cannot just align all, all, um, all black key points to a single uh, red, key, uh, red binding interface point, because in this case, this is not going to cover all the other remaining red points. So we really want to make sure that we do uh, the idea of like every, essentially, um, this, this set of, of uh, Y2 is going to cover as much as possible all the points in P2 and is not, not going to left some uh, over. Um, and the, this alignment should also be based on 3D proximity. So ideally we want to assign this black star to one of the closest red dots and not to the far, the far one. Okay, so we have these three constraints and the question is how do we predict alignments in order to in order to, to satisfy these three constraints and also how we do it in a way that can be trained with our deep learning model. So our solution here is to predict jointly the two alignments, Y2P2 and Y1P1. 
uh, via the idea of optimal transport. So optimal transport is a very nice way to mathematical formulation of matching two sets of objects, maybe sets of different cardinalities. And also in a way that gives us uh, the, the matching, the alignment between elements is a set. Uh, so it, it both finds a set distance and as well as an alignment between, an optimal alignment between points in a set. And it does it in a way that makes sure that uh, one set covers well the, uh, the other set. So is this idea of mass? So if, if, you have, if you have, let's say some mass placed in all, all these black points, the mass is going to be equally distributed to all points in, in P2. So essentially uh, you can view this. So from a, from a mathematical perspective, this T this matrix is going to be a generalization of doubly stochastic matrices. So it's, it's, a, it's a matrix with, with, uh, with positive, with non-negative elements. Uh, entries uh, that is going to have identical marginals for rows and identical marginals for columns. So the way we do it, and I'm going to take a question in just a second, but I just want to say that the way we do it is that we have this cost matrix. Uh, so this cost matrix measures, is shown here, it measures the distance, so-called distance between every key point pair and every binding interface point pair. So the way it's done is essentially taking the 3D distance between a key point in the first protein and uh, a binding interface point in the first protein and the same for the second protein. And it's going to add them up. So uh, what this T matrix is going to do is going to find a sparse mapping between, uh, between indices of key points and indices of binding interface points, such that the total cost matrix over the aligned elements is going to be minimized. And this is going to be a loss function that's going to be minimized during model training. Uh, some questions from Joshua. Um, I, I did not understand how we know the alignment that should exist between Y1 and Y2. Yes, so it's a, it's a, a very good question. So it's, it's because we, we train them. We, we, so our model is based on multi-head attention layers. Uh, so it's, it's essentially going to predict a list, a list of of key points, right? So we can assume that the first point in the list of Y2 corresponds to the first point in the list of Y1. And that's just because they share parameters in the model. So maybe they find, uh, they find complementary or similar patterns. So, so they, they, are, they are already matched because of the model parameters. Okay, okay, I get it. Uh, I also had another question. Yeah. Earlier, you, you said that the message passing neural net would preserve this, uh, uh, independent rotation, you know, uh, property. Uh, I didn't understand how that is achieved, how you guarantee that, uh, that, that equivariance. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good point. I, 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 didn't, I didn't show the actual equations, but what happens is that we update both coordinates and features and the way we, of, of, of nodes, and the way we update coordinates is in a way, if, if you know the paper EN equivariant graph neural networks, from ICML last summer, we actually generalize what they do. So we make sure that when we update coordinates, we only have a scalar. So it's basically based on forces, right? So we take we take differences between coordinates of neighboring nodes, and these are going to to be multiplied by scalars, which are invariant SEC invariant scalars, and then we we add everything up. So it's it's really. I see. So you're saying the the update of the. Uh... The numbers that are being uh, associated to each node in the graph 
guarantees this by construction. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, and for, for features, it's only using invariant messages. So for instance, just distances of 3D coordinates. Uh, and for coordinates, it's going to use forces. Yeah, so essentially distance between 3D, uh, sorry, uh, difference between 3D coordinates. So different vector difference between 3D coordinates multiplied by scalars, which are invariant. Okay. So it's, it's really generalizing the EN equivariant GNN paper approach, but that was done for a single object. And now we do it for multi-objects and make sure that we, we have this independent multi-body equivariance. Okay, any other question? Have you used sign chain information? Only uh, somewhat implicitly um, in, in maybe two ways. One is we have these local frame orientation features. So they capture some, some aspect of side chain structure. And uh, also um, even more implicitly based on a residue identity. But yes, this is uh, something that we, we have to integrate more. What we have done is we have used all atoms, for instance, instead of just residue, alpha carbons in our graphs. The problem is that we see a massive increase in computation and also in, in, uh, in GPU memory. It was training, it was training much slower and we, we could not get improvements with that. And this is both happening for drug-like molecules, uh, as I'm going to show a bit later, because we also this approach also works for drug to, to protein targets. And it also happens for protein-protein interaction. So for both cases, we could not get, uh, it, we, we, we could not get improvements with all atoms instead of just residues. So this is something that we are actively looking into. Just something to mention regarding side chain information. Uh, in PDB bind and DIPS and other data sets, you do have side chain structure. Uh, but my current understanding is that many of these side chain structures are somewhat by, so the experimental measurements might be somewhat inaccurate or the variance might be very large. So if you base yourself too much on the side chain structure, uh, you might have quite a bit of noise in your data that you don't want to have. So essentially the backbone 3D structure is more stable as far as I understand from the discussions with various, various uh, partners and collaborators. Um, so, but, but feel free to contradict if, if, some, if someone knows something, something else regarding that. So I'm just, so, I'm just curious, like for up on that, like, uh, so can you just like use uh, the side chains, uh, I mean, the, the side chains like uh, around the, 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 the binding pocket. So in that case, maybe the, the, complic uh, the computation of complexity is still like uh, 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 handleable, right? So there, there are not yeah. many more, too many like uh, uh, residues in the, in the binding pocket. Right? So if you use, uh, only use those size trends, maybe should, should still be like manageable, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but um, unfortunately, so in, in our case, we, we deal with this blind docking problem. So we don't take any assumption on where the two proteins are more likely to interact. But if you do some, some other way, let's say, uh, maybe you have a different deep learning model that predicts based on the sequences where, where the contact area is likely to be, you can, then take our model maybe and use side chain just for those residues which are more likely to interact. So here, what we haven't done, we haven't done any sort of pre-training with, with uh, sequence, sequence, uh, sequence pair models that predict the contact map. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of papers in that direction and that, that's, that's a future direction, yeah. All right, yeah, because I feel like if you don't use side chain, you cannot determine the, the exact position of the ligand, right? Because I mean, uh, eventually the, the the interaction happens 
I mean, physically, the interaction happens between the side chains and the ligands, right? So I think uh, I think in the future, maybe that's a really uh, important direction uh, to, to, to go in, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely, for sure. Uh, yeah, as I said, we, we have tried various things so far. Uh, I, I will show later for, for small ligands how, how, how it works. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so so, so far we, we are facing some some computational challenges and also we could not we could not get improvements. But yeah, clearly. But as I said, yeah, uh, side chains might be, yeah, the, the, the data might be might be somewhat noisy. But yeah, right, right. Uh, I, I totally agree. Okay. Uh, one more question: the number of key points are hyperparameter. How many key points did you use? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so we, we tried various numbers. Uh, it, it also depends, of course, we looked at the data and we see, okay, uh, we, we range between, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 to a few hundred, maybe at most 200, something like that. And then we, we tried, obviously, hyperparameters in this range, right? So we tried 25, 50, 100. So in the end, uh, 50 was, was working the best. How expensive is it to train these models? It takes around uh, four days on a GPU with 40 gigabytes of memory. So that's one downside for protein. Protein docking, you need like 40 gigabytes of memory, even just using the backbone, right? So no side chains. So that's what I'm saying. When we used all atoms, it was uh, like, like really, really much harder. To... Oh, this is, by the way, batch size uh, 10. So if you use all atoms, you have to use base size one because you cannot, you cannot do more, even on a 40, G, 40 GPU. So it's, it's really... Yeah, for protein-protein interaction, have you compared with alpha-fold multimer? So uh, alpha-fold multimer was actually, yeah, it's actually uh, was actually re released uh, one day after we submitted to I ICLR. We haven't so far done a comparison. Uh, they are doing the problem of really they, they start with two sequences and they predict the final complex. So I would say it's a bit different because many times you know the structures, especially in pharmaceutical companies, they know, okay, I have this cancer protein. I have, I have looked at this structure for many years, maybe. So many times people know the structures. I, 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 I totally believe, and we are actually trying now to build on top of AlphaFold to take AlphaFold predictions and uh, the input to our model instead of just true protein structures. There is a lot of synergies there. I, I have to say that AlphaFold Multimer also uses uh, right uh, uh, MSA information, mm -hmm. which we don't use here. So maybe that's one advantage of our model. And as I said, yeah, we, we don't we don't we, we assume already we have the structure. So we don't want to add an additional complexity in our model to say, yeah, please also predict the 3D structure of the proteins, which which is already like maybe a, a very very complicated problem in itself, as you know. Yeah. Uh, so. I guess there are there are many uh, many complementary and also kind of uh, common views of alpha four multimer and our model. Uh, one aspect is that alpha four multimer um, is actually currently is taking the sequences and assuming a pre-order. So it's assuming I, I have to order the sequences in some way, first one, second one. And in fact, in our model, you don't have this assumption. So the order of two proteins doesn't matter, which is which is is what should should be. Right. Um, yeah. So there is just two sets of key points per protein pairs. Can they interact at multiple locations? Um, yes, it, uh, sorry, uh, if I understand. So what are you asking if, um, if, if the two proteins can have uh, different, uh, different ways to bind? Uh, yeah, that is possible. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, uh, that is possible in, in the data we see it's 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 one one way, right? Usually, um, 
I, I think that's relatively rare, but it's, it's indeed a, a downside of our current model that we don't predict, a, let's say, a set of possible of possible three uh, D structures. Um, so a question there is how, yeah, how how much data could be used uh, for for this problem? Um, Joshua, you have one more question. Are you assuming that the two proteins are only going to move rigidly when binding? Currently, yes. I'll show later that for drugs, more drug-like molecules, we have we assume flexible. We are going to model flexibility in the drug uh, conformation, not for proteins. So proteins are currently rigid. That's something, uh, an aspect that we are currently actively working on. And yeah, definitely, that's that's one downside at the moment that we don't have flexibility in the protein. Uh, so yeah, we don't have flexibility in the in the protein structure, but. The fact that we don't use side chain can also be seen as an advantage because side chains are usually the most flexible parts. So we are we are using uh, only we, we, are, we are using only backbone and it seems to work relatively well as I'll show later. Uh, yeah. Okay, Mil. Um, I just want to to make a time check here. Um, um, do you think you have enough time to go over the remaining of the presentation? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I will. Uh, yes, uh, how do, do you believe like 15 minutes maybe? I, I don't know if people have other commitments and have to go. Um, it's up to you. If you have a few more time to finish the presentation, it's fine. Uh, anyway, there's recording for, for people who will have missed the, the end of it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so, um, okay, so let me, oh, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> um, Maybe okay. Would you would you want that I finish uh, at least and sh sh show some experiments and then I'll take more questions at the end? I see many people yeah, are very interested here. Okay, yeah. sorry. I will I will remember that I remained at, at Constantine. Oh no, sorry. Uh, ah, Gian. Sorry, I hope I pronounce your name properly. Sorry if I missed that. Okay, so uh, I I will get back to to your questions later. Really sorry for that. Uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to see that you are very interested and. In, uh, Okay, so let's, okay. So this was the, the pipeline. So we now superimpose Y1 and Y2 and we recover the transformation. And the way we superimpose it actually, it's also differentiable. So we run this capsule algorithm. So this is a classic algorithm to superimpose two point sets in a, using a just rotation and translation in 3D. So it boils down to having an SVD matrix. So you, you have to compute a cross covariance matrix of Y1 and Y2. This is going to then be applied an SVD on top of it, so we use PyTorch SVD, which is differentiable. So we can we can all backpropagate through so also through this arrow that you see here. So finally, we have um, we have a loss function. So we have this optimal transport loss function that I explained before. We have also an, an mean squared error for uh, for the ligand RMSD uh, the, the loss function, and we finally have an auxiliary non-intersection loss function. So we sometimes see that we have a, a little bit of intersections. Uh, so let, let me get into that. So what happens is that we want to give a large penalty to point clouds that intersect and a low penalty to, to point clouds that are tangent or non-intersecting. And the way we do it is that we build this um, very efficient loss function, which is shown here to, to prevent non-intersections. So it, it essentially means just intuitively, there is quite a bit of math here, but just intuitively, around each each uh, residue we build, let's say a Gaussian. Uh, so you can view it as a sphere, right, with some certain radius, and um, then the surface of a point cloud is going to be given. So we, we have this mixture of Gaussians, right, essentially. So uh, the surface of a point cloud is going to be a set of points x in three D, for which 
the Gaussian has a certain, a certain gamma value, right? So the interior of the protein is going to be the set of points for which the Gaussian, this uh, mixture of Gaussian, this function G has a value less than gamma. And the exterior is going to be the outside of the point cloud is going to be uh, the set of uh, G of X bigger than gamma. So now you can imagine that we can simply do a max margin loss function by really trying all pairs of points between X1 and X2. So we want, if, if we have a point which is inside this, this, the, the other surface, we just do a max margin to make it go, go away, like get, get out of essentially, intuitively speaking, get out of, of the other point cloud. So this doesn't require any pre-computation, surface pre-computation, which, which can be expensive for various applications. Um, okay, so, so I, I, I have finished with the explaining how we do the model for protein-protein docking, but I want to argue that this is a very generic model. And in fact, we have already applied it for small drug-like ligands binding to proteins, to, to rigid uh, protein receptor structure. So uh, what happens here is that we start with a ligand graph. We have an initial random RD kit conformer, and we're going to model flexibility of it. So we're going to model three aspects. We are going to model how the, the, the drug, sorry, uh, where the drug binds. So the binding location, it's again, the blind docking problem. We're going to model uh, how exactly, so the orientation and the location and also the, the, the change in flexibility. So we're, we're going to model also uh, the change in torsion angles of rotatable bonds, because we know that local structures are typically rigid in for, for small ligands. So the pipeline is very similar to what I showed before with some additions. So this is what I showed before, but now we, we replaced one of the proteins with a small drug-like ligand. And instead of taking alpha carbons, we now take coordinates of atoms, individual atoms, including hydrogens, and then we build a K nearest neighbor graph with atoms. Again, a random RD kit conformer. And well, uh, this actually introduces, introduces some stochasticity in our model because we can change what is the uh, input RD kit conformer. But uh, you'll see that there, are, there is not a lot of variance when we do that. Uh, okay, so we run our pipeline, we predict some transformed coordinates and features. We do, again, the multi-head attention, we predict, predict key points. This is going to give the rigid transformation. What I don't explain here is how we predict the conformational change of the drug ligand. And that's actually shown here. So the key idea here is that we take the transform coordinates and we say, we actually want these transform coordinates to represent the atom coordinates of the final bound conformation. Okay, so what we do that by changing only torsion angles of rotatable bonds uh, to fit this Z point cloud. So we have the Z point cloud, which represents now um, coordinates of the bound ligand, so of, of, of the deformed ligand. We train it as such using capture MSD. And then as a post-processing step, we take the initial ligand and we are going to just change rotatable bonds in a way that's very efficient using uh, uh, for misses log likelihood uh, uh, function, so loss function that can be minimized in closed form. And we're going to fit the ligand in this point cloud. So I didn't explain too much on the details of that, but if you're really interested in the mathematical details and how we do that super efficiently, uh, like really in a fraction of seconds, we can, we can do this fitting of rotatable bonds. You can, you, you, you can check our paper, uh, it's called Equibind, okay? So um, now let me, let, let me finally dive, in, dive into some experiments. So let me first show experiments on, on flexible drug ligand to rigid protein docking. Again, this is like a blind docking. So it have no assumption of where is the binding site, which is actually very important for many downstream problems. 
as data set to use uh, PDB binds, uh, which contains uh, roughly 19K complexes of proteins and drug-like molecules. We found it very important to have a test set which has very recent release structure. So 2020 version of PDB bind and trace set is everything before that, before 2019. And uh, moreover, we also removed shared ligands between train and test. So yeah, this is also to, to prevent overfitting. We do have some common uh, proteins but not in, in the visualizing example that I'll show in a second. As baselines, we have uh, really uh, some of the most used uh, academic open source baselines like Mina and Autodoc Vina. Uh, on top of those, so this, this rely on this idea of heavy candidate sampling and scoring. And there is this deep learning based model, which has been using, uh, it's called Nina. Uh, it's using deep learning for the scoring part of these pipelines. And there is also uh, this Glide software developed by Schrodinger, um, which is a commercial software. And again, very used by, by for instance, many of our uh, uh, pharmaceutical company partners at MIT. So I'll show some, some uh, just some experiments here. We have more in our paper, uh, so feel free to check them out. So here are the, the baselines, first of all. So we have QVINA wide, wide, wide again means blind docking, so no assumption on, on the binding site. We have NINA, SMINA, and Glide. Um, and we have a ligand RMSD and different percentiles, and also the percentage of uh, molecules predicting it as being less than five angstrom to the true, uh, to, to, to the true structure and the two angstrom from, from, from the two, true structure. So you see here the plots, obviously we want the plot to be as high as possible. Okay, so these are the CDF plots, right? So now we have equibind our model, you see it's much, much faster than the existing methods. Um, and it often outperforms uh, the models, the other models, or it's on par. Uh, with one exception, if you look at the two angstrom here, we are actually behind. So this is really like the, like the fine-tuning regime of, 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 uh, of this problem, of this task. So what we can do to, to also solve that fine-tuning regime is to actually take our predictions and now fine-tune them with, so Q is like Q vina wide, it is model, and S is minor. So QVinal can be run in different local search um, uh, strategies. It's called exhaustiveness. So how far, how, how much you want to let it search, right? Uh, so of course, if you want to let it search for more, it's going to increase the runtime. So it, it's, it's always a trade-off between runtime and quality. So you see that if you let it run more, it's going to improve. And uh, finally, if you take Spina, um, you are going to get an increase in computational cost, but you are, you are going to get uh, the best numbers overall. So you are, you are going to improve in really, really all, all numbers. So some qualitative uh, visualization. I just selected one very nice visualization. So when we when we uh, had had uh, this project uh, uh, more or less done, we we took it to one of our partners from a, a Relay Therapeutics, uh, and uh, they they were actually very excited to try it on on one interesting uh, cancer protein is called 6HD6 in, um, in uh, PDB. So it, 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 it's actually tyrosine uh, kinase. It's responsible for three types of cancer, lung, leukemia, and gastrointestinal tumors. And uh, only, only three, three drugs are known to currently inhibit this protein if you look in PDB bind, and two of them were developed by Novartis, and one of them was actually ABL001, was just approved like very recently, last year, end of last year. Uh, so this protein was actually not part of our trains. So we, we removed on purpose this protein from our train set. 
Um, and also the ligands, of course, as I said before. So what you see here, first of all, I'm, I'm going to show these two drugs developed by Novartis. They are, they are actually, um, uh, their ground truth, co-crystal structures are shown here. And if we use CNINA, this deep learning baseline is going to predict both in the same pocket. Uh, so that's, that's maybe not, not so good. If we use MINA, it's going to predict again, both in the same pocket, but the other pocket. If we use GLIDE, it's going to find the two pockets, but just for some reason swap the two, the two ligands. Uh, if we use our model, it's actually going to, to, to give, uh, our model fine-tuned with MINA, is going to give very good predictions and is going to find the pockets very accurately. So this is what uh, one, one uh, example that our partners were, were very excited about. Okay, so let me conclude by showing some experiments also rigid protein, protein docking. So here we use two data sets, we use DIPS, uh, which is a recent data set um, from, um, again, from, from PDB. It contains like roughly around 42K proteins. And there is a classic DB, it's called um, a docking benchmark dataset, which is now version 5.5. This is a very, very small dataset. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that DIPS is actually only contains the, the complex structures. It doesn't contain the unbound structures. And that's one of the reasons why we tackled the rigid protein docking in the first place. Uh, the DB5.1 contains mostly rigid uh, proteins, contains some flexible proteins, but a small fraction of those. Um, so we use some baselines, again, academic and commercial baselines. Um, and uh, yeah, ClassPro, for instance, was also used in alpha-4 multimer paper. Uh, so in terms of speed, um, so you see here uh, these baselines. What, what you have to keep in mind is that the numbers of uh, runtime for ClassPro and PatchDoc, they are pessimistic in the sense that we had to submit test sets one by one, test examples one by one on their websites. Um, yeah, because, because uh, there is no way to run it locally or yeah, we, we couldn't make it work locally and the others that were, were run locally. Um, so our model is, uh, is, is much faster because it doesn't have this candidate, heavy candidate sampling strategy. In terms of quality, we compare with two metrics like complex RMSD and interface RMSD. Um, and you see here that we are better than three out of four baselines, uh, somewhat, somewhat better, yeah. Um, with the exception of HDOC, with HDOC, something is maybe a little bit um, like it, it doesn't really favor a direct comparison, I would argue. Uh, one, I, I will say why. So HDOC is a template-based model uh, technique. So it uses templates from, from known docked structures. And the problem is that we, the way we sample our train test, uh, let's say for DIPS, is really based on family proteins, but it's not based on release time. Um, and in this way, it's really possible that some of these baselines have used templates from our test set, let's say. And in fact, when we looked at the distribution, you see here like HDOC seems quite bimodal distribution. In fact, if we look at the numbers, uh, like, like a really, I, I don't have the histogram here, but they really half of the, exactly half of our test structures, like 50 out of 100 are zero point something RMSD, so almost perfect. And the other half are really like 10 or more angstrom. So this is kind of maybe hints the fact that this template-based modeling might not be favoring like direct comparison with machine learning models. Anyway, so just want to, to finish with some visualization. We have a ground truth here of, two pro, of a protein complex. 
uh, we are going to keep this black protein fixed across all these images. And you see like this model, these baselines, they place uh, this other protein in the wrong side of the black protein. Our model fi finds the right side. Uh, it's obviously not, not perfect as you can see, but uh, it's, it, it, it gives a good prediction of the binding site. I did have some uh, slides for generative models of 3D molecular conformations, but I will not, I will not have time to, to go over them. Uh, and I will uh, I'll probably end here to, to take questions. Sorry, I had, I, I had a lot of other slides here and maybe some interesting aspects for future work, which yeah, unfortunately, I'll probably have to skip. I just want to thank my, my collaborators and sponsors. And with that, let me just take uh, your questions and thank you for your patience. Thank you so much, Hatevian. Uh, um, yeah, I think if people have questions, they can raise their hand and ask their question themselves instead of um, writing the chat. I can probably go over the remaining questions uh, that I, I didn't, there are a lot of questions. I remember I, I stopped after Joshua's last question. So I, I, I can go over them, right? Does it make sense? Yes. Please. So Gian, sorry, Gian, I hope I pronounced your name properly. Uh, have you thought of integrating equivariant features in the message passing routine using steerable counterpart of the Euclidean GNN? Are there SST equivariant features in the data that could be useful? Um, yes, sure. There is a lot of work from, for instance, from people like uh, Taco Cohen and uh, Max Welling. Um, and we, we do use, uh, as I said, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so uh, for, for instance, for, for uh, and also Michael Braunstein and other folks, uh, for instance, Massive, the Massive paper. So dealing with like um, uh, convol uh, uh, mesh convolutions, right? So, so taking, taking the input as a mesh, not just, a, not just as a spatial graph. So I think these are really complementary strategies. So I, I believe, I really believe the future is really to complement these strategies and create a, a really strong, powerful technique that can uh, take proteins with their different views, maybe be it like sequence, be it spatial graph, be it uh, mesh of an irregular object and apply different techniques there. Uh, yeah, so totally, totally, I believe that uh, as a community, we can, we can really, uh, do very exciting breakthroughs and combining various techniques. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm not claiming that my model is ultimate, not at all. I really believe in complementarity and I really believe in, in uh, collaborations and, and the way we can, we can together as a community drive drug discovery and accelerate dr drug discovery, right? So help pharmaceutical companies and academic labs and industry labs to accelerate drug discovery. Have you looked into constraining the binding interface? For antibodies, the binding is usually medi mediated by a specific set of residues. Yeah, for sure. So this is something we are currently looking at. Uh, when you have information about the binding site, which you do have for many classes of proteins, like antibodies, you, you said, and also many others. Yeah, so we are actively looking into that. Pat, uh, Pat says, what tells us that the sparse mapping between uh, key points and binding interface points will be the same for each protein pair is not the same. That's what optimal transport is doing. And that's why is it nice because optimal transport is tailored to find all is a different matching, different alignment between binding interface points and key points. Uh, since the ordering of points in P sets depends on the order of residues in the protein pair. In my understanding, the ordering of the PIs is random depending on the way residues are ordered in the data set. It is random, yes. 
but their their bijection is is clear is fixed right so that's that's what it means i i represent it as, as kind of a list uh, what i want to meant is the bijection is fixed right sorry if, if that was maybe unclear from the slides but they are sets i i, I said at some point that they are sets however in equidoc there is only one mapping that is learned between yis and pis uh, yeah, as I said, it's, it's one mapping, but it's mapping between sets. So I, I hope that, that clarifies your question. What will happen if, uh, Tony, Tony asks, what will happen if you input two proteins that don't bind together? Do you predict some kind of binding energy? Yeah, so uh, we don't have, uh, currently, um, uh, we are working on the aspect, and I, I don't have uh, anything to share at the moment. But yeah, so our, our assumption currently is that they do bind and we train on data that binds. So we are, we are actively trying strategies to incorporate decoys, if you're familiar with the, with the terminology. And so a negative example, essentially. Um, Dominic, no, this was a comment for Yosha. Uh, Maxim, uh, hi, Maxim. Uh, thank you for the talk, interesting approach. What Equido code? Oh yeah, it's a very, it's a very bad, I didn't show it. Hmm. Wait, here, sorry. Feel free to check our code and try it out and give us feedback, please. And uh, yeah. Oh, someone pointed. Thank you. <laughs> Falk, Falk uh, in Equibind, you assume that your protein is fixed and your ligand is flexible. Uh, if the binding pocket contains an intrinsically disordered region, the position of the dog ligand depends on a specific position on the disordered region, which is not necessarily the same like the most occupied conformation of this region in the, its upper state. How do you de deal with disorder region in the protein? So yeah, so so currently, as I said, we don't uh, we don't model flexibility in 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 a good way. Uh, it's just somewhat implicitly via the fact that we have only some features of side chains. We don't we don't have uh, we we don't constrain side chains to be rigid because we use backbone information and some side chain features. But we're we're working on that maybe using energy-based models, that's, that's one way, and there has been some recent work on that. Uh, Yun, Yun Chao, uh, thank you, for, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, Maxime is asking, like the fine-grained structures of two five angstrom. Yeah, I, I showed how we, how we do that and how we fine-tune and we get very good results. Um, Florian, what is your model doing with, okay, I already replied to that. Yeah, we, we are working on that as I said. Okay, so I guess that's someone else has any other question. Feel free to reach out by the way, if you have any things like uh, just send an email, Twitter, uh, you know where you can find me and my, and my collaborators obviously. <laughs> <laughs>